Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is October the 14th, 2015. This is episode 1660 of the Survival Podcast. And uh, we're going to actually continue on a theme that we started with yesterday. I talked about the Great Recession that never ended yesterday, and some people don't think that it is still going, but I don't think those people are in touch with reality. When people say things like, well, my gut feeling is, well, I appreciate gut feelings, but uh, gut feelings kind of ignore facts and numbers and logic and reality. So I think when we look at the actual numbers, we can make a really good case that the recession never ended because if we took away all the things that are being lied about in the GDP right now, we'd have continuing recession on and off from 2008 Till right now. In fact, the first quarter of 2015 would have been a down quarter, and it's probable that the second would be, and that would mean that officially we'd be in a recession now if we were just calculating the GDP the way it's always been calculated. Something to think about. But here's the interesting thing. I've got Nicole Foss coming on today. She's calling in very early from New Zealand. We're going to talk about the liquidity crunch and the economic depression, which she refers to as the age of limits. And I'd like to tell you, you know, I did my show yesterday to get you in this frame of mind so I could bring the coal on and we could expand on it, but no, I didn't. Uh, as busy as I've been, I haven't really been paying attention to who my guest of the week is until the morning of the interview. So in the morning of the interview, I'll get my piece of paper from Dorothy that I'm holding right here. It tells me all about the guests and it gives me their, their, their outline that they want to discuss and I do some research on them and, and, and what have you, but I don't really look at them like a day before. So it just so happened to come up that way. So hopefully this happy coincidence will uh, lead us into a discussion on some not-so-happy things, but we'll figure out what we can do about it. Before we get into that, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, the awesome, illustrious Chef Keith Snow with HarvestEating.com, where he'll teach you to make cooking a, a life skill by focusing on technique over recipe. If you don't think cooking is a survival skill... Brother, you've never lived on MREs for six months like I have. You get pretty creative in those situations. Being able to cook all the food that we talk about growing for ourselves and sourcing locally is a great way uh, to enhance your quality of life and to save money. If you're not, if you know, if you become a great cook, you're not going out to expensive restaurants. And Chef Keith has a lot of ways to help you do that. He has an awesome podcast. He has a really great YouTube channel, and uh, right now he's got some of the coolest uh, sauces you'll ever find possible. The sauces and new packaging that makes shipping a lot easier. Things like creamy basil, flame roasted red pepper, sun dried tomato, and rosemary. Uh, soon he'll be moving things over to Amazon, but for now, just go ahead and check out harvesteating.com for all of that and more. Remember, Chef Keith will help you make cooking into a life skill. Next up today, sponsor of the day number two, westernbotanicals.com. Um, I am a big believer in going to herbs before going to conventional medicines, be they prescription drugs, over-the-counter, I don't care. Um, I have personally found that herbs are a more gentle way to treat uh, the acute symptoms and chronic symptoms that we all deal with on a daily basis. Now, I'm not a doctor, and I don't prescribe treatments, and I never claim to. And the people at Western Botanicals, while they are a chiropractic facility, also don't make medical recommendations. They simply provide the highest quality herbs, 
raw herbs and herbal supplements and other things like essential oils for your own use. And they're real people that really care about you. And if you pick up the phone and call them, someone in Utah, not New Delhi, will answer the phone and help you make the right decisions for yourself. That's what Western Botanicals is all about. They are a great sponsor. They have been with us a very long time, six-plus years. That is that is forever in the world of podcasting. They also have a program called their Premium Membership Program where they give a 25% discount on everything they sell. They sell that membership for $50 a year every day. If you are a member of our support brigade, you get that membership absolutely free. All you have to do is call them up, give them the code word in your MSB account, and they will set up your account for you so you can get 25% off on everything they sell. Some of the favorite things that I use by them are the turmeric formula. Uh, that is one of the best anti-inflammatory things that I've ever used personally for myself. Again, I can't make individual personal recommendations on it, but I can tell you that I use it and it works for me. If my back is sore and achy, if my shoulder's acting up from an old injury from the military uh, after a hard day working, I go to that. Their deep heat ointment is another great thing for that. They have a pain relief formula that uses valerian. Those are things I personally use on a regular basis. There's a lot of other really great things there. Basically, guys, if it's herbal and it's legal, you can find it at Western Botanicals, where their goal is to create an herbalist in every home, to empower you not only to use their formulas, but to give you the raw herbs and the ingredients you need to make your own herbal formulations, including how to use the herbs from your own backyard and then get the parts for the formulation you need from them and the extra materials and the knowledge from them. You can get everything at westernbotanicals.com. Check them out today. Again, westernbotanicals.com. And if you're an MSB member, do not forget to get your premium membership 25% off everything they sell every day of the year. Next up, let's take a look at the history segment. We have the history segment for 1660 because the episode is 1660. Alex Shrugged has a couple on deck for us today. We have All is Forgiven Except the Fines. And the first professional Shakespearean actresses are not prostitutes. You can read that one for yourself. Let's read All is Forgiven Except the Fines. After the death of Oliver Cromwell and the forced resignation of his son Richard, Parliament invites Charles II to pick up where his father left off. The soon-to-be king issues an invitation to all who opposed his father, the previous king of England, to take an oath of loyalty, and all will be forgiven. Probably the most important part of the proclamation is the military will get all their back pay. The wording of Charles II's proclamation is somewhat vague. He allows the Parliament might decide to change some of these conditions, and indeed it does. The Indemnity and Oblivion Act of 1660 does not forgive those directly involved with the beheading of King Charles I. Also not forgiven are crimes such as witchcraft, murder, piracy, rape, buggery, which is usually animal, uh, well, never mind. What it is is not forgi- whatever it is is not forgiven. Also not forgiven are any fines due to Parliament, which gives rise to a lot of resentment and a little ditty that summarizes how the public feels. For where there's money to be got, it's not a pardon. It, I find this pardon pardons not. Um, the peop- And this is from Alex Shrug now, his take. The people want stability more than liberty. Let's be frank, they still do. The army privates at the time understood that a free republic was needed, but they were mostly ignored. It was the nobles pushing for the return of the king. Otherwise, their pernicious institutions of privilege and special rights would fall. This is a problem with liberty. It takes work. Sometimes it takes a lot of work. When the American Revolution began, the majority of colonists did not want to break with the king. They had their complaints, but enough to do more than throw a few boxes of tea into the harbor. It took a core leadership with a reasonable plan to push everyone else forward. The Articles of Confederation and Declaration of Independence weren't a full plan, but they were enough to make a beginning. 
In the modern day, some people think that we need a constitutional convention to put our country back on the right path. What the majority of people do not. Everyone has their complaints, but not enough to do something about them. They probably never will. I will give you my take on this in modern day, looking back at history and seeing England offered the ability to become a republic in the 1600s, and the people basically saying, nah, just bring us the tyrant king back. And we'll, we'll, we'll accept this parliament thing, too, right? So we'll accept more government. So it was the growth of government, right? And then seeing the way that this country has squandered what liberty it had, uh, I don't want a constitutional convention either, and I'll tell you why. I think if we had a constitutional convention today, we would not use it to restrict government. We would use it to empower government. We would use it to do things to empower government, to do things the current Constitution does not allow the government to do. I believe the move today in America by the majority of the people is toward greater tyranny and bigger government. The only difference of opinion right now is what that tyranny should look like and whose liberty it should interfere with. We have one side that wants to interfere mostly with free market and economic liberty, and another side that wants to interfere with personal liberties that do not harm other people. There is no real desire to reduce the scope and size of government today on either side. Now, I know you're screaming at the radio or your headset or whatever right now saying, Jack, I want to reduce the size and scope of government. Do you really? Do you really? If I came out with a plan as a, as a president of this country, if the people of the country went crazy enough to elect Jack Spirico president, and I said my plan is to cut every single department of government by 10% this year, right now, and I will veto anything that comes across my desk, would you support it? Some of you are screaming yes, then start thinking about what it means. 10% from the military. 10% off the Department of Education. 10% off the Department of Homeland Security. See, if I keep going, sooner or later, you're going to get to a place where you go, well, we can't do that. We could. We could very, very easily. And you cannot begin to reduce government until you begin to reduce the funding that it has to do what it's doing. The, the restriction on government is not a democratic process. It's not checks and balances. It's economic. As long as the government has money, it can pretty much get away with doing whatever it wants because it can provide enough stability and free stuff for the people that it's governing to keep at least half of them and a few people more happy. My take by Jack Spirico. Yeah, constitutional convention. Watch what that would do. It would take away, I guarantee you, it would be used to take away certain things that are in the Constitution right now as amendments. Like, you know, well, maybe we need a little more policing of what we call free speech. And this Second Amendment thing has been a problem for a long time. Now, maybe we have a chance to do something about that. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Anyway... With all of that wrapped up, let's uh, take a look at Bomb Wells, plant of the week. Every week, Bomb Wells Nursery brings us a plant that we can grow in our own backyard to help feed ourselves and to make our awesome yard look even awesomer. Bomb Wells plant of the week this week is the Blenheim Apricot. The Blenheim Apricot is a highly adaptable apricot. can be grown in zones 5 through 9. It's the most popular apricot in the United States. It's considered to be the most flavorful, best-tasting apricot in production. Medium to large yellow skin and orange blush apricot has superb flavor. The Blenheim apricot tree ripens late June to early July. Self-fruitful. Estimated chilling requirements are four to 500 hours. You can find this plant more at bombwellsnursery.com. Bob specializes in edible landscape, including fruit trees, berry plants, and nut trees, and as well as hard-to-find specialty fruit trees. Um, 
I want to say something about this. So I actually have a whole bunch of trees uh, coming in October from Bob Wells Nursery. And among them are four of these awesome apricots. And the reason that I have this particular variety coming is I have an apricot tree on my property that's like five years old. It's like one of the few things that lived that the guy that owned the house before me planted. It's beautiful. It's huge. It's big. I don't know what variety it is, but I can tell you what it does. It blossoms in February. Yeah, it does. And then the frost comes in and knocks all the blossoms off. So for me in particular, I looked at the, the, the ripening date, the production dates of this tree, and realized it was a later blooming variety of apricot. And due to that, I decided to give this one a shot on the property because that other apricot tree um, is lucky that it's such a great tree in of itself because really what it needs is a chainsaw because it will never, I think, be productive here. Uh, we So far, we have gotten, in three years, two apricots, one a year, two years in a row, that managed to somehow survive or blossom late or whatever and not get killed by the frost. Anyway, with that, uh, I want to remind you guys you can help support the show by joining the Members Support Brigade. You join the MSB. Uh, you can help support the show at 18.3 cents an episode. You can learn more. Just go to survivalpodcast.com. Click on Members. With that... I want to welcome our special guest to the show to discuss liquidity crunch, economic depression, and the age of limits. Her name is Nicole Foss. She's joining us today from New Zealand. Hey, Nicole, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for being with us today. And uh, so my first question always to try to let the guests connect with the audience is, can you tell us how you got into what you're doing today? I find for many of our guests it was kind of a wonky path to end up where they are. So how did you get where you are? It was a very wonky path. Uh, basically, I've been trying to figure out how the world worked for the last 30 years, and that involved working in all sorts of different fields in order to learn enough about each different subsystem of reality to be able to understand the critical features of that. And what I've been doing for the last 10 years is pulling it all together. So I was a biologist, an environmental scientist, a medical researcher, I've worked in neuroscience and, and psychology, environmental consultancy. Then I, I was an energy academic. I was a research fellow at Oxford. I wrote books on nuclear safety in Eastern Europe. I've worked in grid connections for renewable energy, uh, electricity grids, power systems, um, energy policy. I've studied finance for 20 years. I've been working on integrating all of that. So there's there's a huge amount that we cover at the automatic Earth. So it's finance and energy, human systems, geopolitics, psychology, herding behavior, um, climate and environment, and just about everything that that really fits together to give you that biggest possible big picture. So that that's what we've been working on providing for about the last 10 years. So before we kind of get into the meat and potatoes of this interview and, and discuss what you see coming as a, a liquidity crunch and uh, an economic depression, uh, would you uh, kind of tell us a little bit about your website, Automatic Earth, and, and what that's all about? Yes, yeah, so the Automatic Earth was, was founded in uh, January 2008. Um, we ended up with an enormous number of readers because we called the financial crisis at that time. In fact, we've been doing that since, since the end of 2006 when we worked previously at the oil drum, which is a peak, peak oil website. So we, we've been trying to pull everything together into this big, biggest possible big picture at the Automatic Earth. Uh, the name itself, by the way, comes from uh, the song The Boy in the Bubble by Paul Simon. It's the last line of the second verse. But my writing partner is musical and metaphorical. So uh, hence, that's, that's where the name comes from. But it's, it's all about looking to the future, anticipating trend changes, 
because there's so little of that that actually happens. What people mostly do is extrapolate current trends forward as if they were going to continue forever and say that if we continue on this path, you know, in 30 years, we'll have got to this. So they spend money today to do things like build the infrastructure they think they're going to need for the future they think they're going to have in 30 years time. But when there's no ability to anticipate a trend change, one is almost certainly wrong doing that. So it's our job to understand all these different subsystems of reality, to understand what the time constants are for change in each different subsystem, in order to know which things are the key drivers at what time, in order to be able to anticipate trend changes and predict not 30 years out, because that is so uncertain that it's a bit of a mugs game, but to be able to predict what's coming next and what one has to do to deal with it before it happens. So it's about allowing people to be proactive. So in your writing, I've seen you talk a lot about entering what you call an age of limits. Uh, can you tell us what you mean by an age of limits and, and why you feel that we're entering that at this particular time? Well, we're facing limits in a whole range of different ways. I mean, if you look at curves, graphs of, of consumption of resources, of population, of Across the board, they look like hockey sticks. They're, that's what the, the typical term is, a hockey stick curve. It means that they start slow and then they go exponential. They take off. And if you look at what seems to have, to have driven all that, it's really the discovery and consumption of fossil fuels. There's almost a perfect correlation between the use of fossil fuels and so many of these other curves going exponential, including human population. So we really have just taken off in so many ways. And because we've experienced that exponential growth across the board, we're approaching limits in many ways. We're, the, the limit of the environment to absorb our waste streams, for instance, limits in, in, in terms of energy. We're at or around peak oil where we, we have reached a production peak. We're not going to exceed the production of fossil fuel energy that we currently have. We're going to be declining, and that means it's going to force contraction. We're facing limits in terms of finance because we've reached the point, more or less, where all the income streams of the productive economy can no longer service the debt that we've created. So the, the limits are just across the board, and we're going to hit one after another. And one of the things that's important about understanding the time constants for change is knowing which limits you're likely to hit first, because you have to prepare for the one that's coming up next. And in this case, we're preparing primarily for limits in the world of finance, because finance is virtual, meaning that the time constant for change is incredibly short. So we almost, for instance, crashed the global banking system in September 2008. We could have, we could see that kind of change happen literally in hours. So we have to be aware that, that things can change very quickly in finance. A lot of people are drastically overextended, overstretched, for instance, overleveraged. They've borrowed a great deal of money to purchase the assets they have. They typically owe more than they own. And what you end up with when you reach that limit in terms of finance is a drastic downward revaluation of financial assets, stocks and bonds, falling financial value of physical assets, so homes, for instance, uh, the collapse of access to credit, um, spiking interest rates, rising taxes, rising property taxes or rates, 
um, user fees being imposed on things that were previously free. So there's a whole constellation of things that happen when you reach limits in the world of finance, and that's going to be the first hurdle that we have to get over. If we successfully navigate that one, we preserve our freedom of action in order to be able to deal later on with limits in the more physical world. The change, the time constant for change in the physical world is, is much longer. So then we still retain our freedom of action to deal with uh, shortages of energy, shortages of other resources, maybe water, um, issues to do with climate, and a whole range of other things. Now, I've kind of paid attention to history, uh, recent history and older history with uh, financial crises in the past. And generally, what I've noted is that different areas respond differently to the same crisis, even when everybody's effective. So could you explain how you think the liquidity crunch and economic depression will look different for, say, the United States versus Europe and Latin America, as well as for, let's say, rural, suburban, and urban areas within the United States? That's very true. And what we've had over the last, well, 30 years of our, our expansion period is we've had greater and greater homogenization, at least within the developed world. So almost anywhere in the developed world you live, you have access to roughly the same kinds of things. <coughs> so you've got what you might describe as a, as a modern lifestyle. But when you move in the other direction, when you start to move into contraction, instead of greater and greater homogenization, you get greater and greater heterogeneity. In other words, places start to look different again. Because what's allowed for homogenization over the last long period of time is that we've been able to trade. So whatever you didn't have, you traded for what you, you did have. So we were able to even things out, and it didn't much matter what you had or didn't have where you were. So long as you could trade, everyone could have access to more or less the same things, uh, aspects of, of modernity. But one of the things that happens in a period of economic depression is that trading relationships break down. You can't get letters of credit because they depend on functioning credit markets. Without letters of credit, goods don't move. So even if there's demand for them, goods don't move because no one can agree on who's going to take the risk of making the shipment. When you can't trade anymore, your local circumstances come to matter a whole lot more than they have done for a very long time. You have to live within your local reality, and our local realities are different. Now, in 2008, uh, the United States was leading the path into uh, the financial crisis. So all the subprime loans, for instance, Uh, were really the focus at the time, not just the, the fact that people were defaulting on subprime loans, but all the, the consequences higher up the financial food chain in terms of collateralized debt obligations and, and all the bets that had been placed on the, the mortgages, the way mortgages had been securitized and then bet against and games were being played all over the place. That was the focus in 2008. At the time, the rest of the world was less affected particularly the commodity exporters, because it was the peak of a commodity super cycle. So commodity exporters like Canada and Australia, for instance, or Brazil, were, were not badly affected at all in 2008, even as the U.S. was sliding into the bursting of its housing bubble and, and a mini liquidity crunch. This time, what we're seeing is Europe is in the firing line right now. And in fact, has been for the last little while. Europe is leading the way. Europe ha has banks that are far more over leveraged than the United States. The housing bubbles are bigger. 
and Europe is going to have more energy difficulties because it's used up most of its indigenous energy supply. So it's going to end up being dependent on Russia, for instance. So this time Europe is is in the, the crosshairs, so to speak, and it's dividing up the European Union. So the European single currency is not going to survive this process. It's it's not possible to predict exactly how long the, the euro will last, but it really has no future because everything is tearing apart the fabric of the European Union at the moment. We're seeing this in the whole European periphery, but ultimately the risk will creep closer to the center and country after country will move into the same dynamic. So today it's Greece and Portugal and Italy and Spain and, and Ireland. Tomorrow it will be France and the Netherlands and Finland, for instance. So we're, we're going to see a great deal of division in the European Union. I think the European Union itself is going to break apart. I don't think the United States is going to break apart anytime soon, because in the United States, one considers oneself, generally speaking, American before having any other identity, say a state-based identity. That's not true in Europe. In Europe, you're French or you're German or you're Dutch before you're European. Yep. Texas, is, Texas and Vermont are perhaps the two exceptions to that. But on the whole, you know, if you're Californian, you're an American. You would fly an American flag. And, yes, I, I realize that. <laughs> I, I've been to Austin. That's the one part of Texas where I've lectured before. And I understand that's a little bit atypical for the state. Yes. But what's happening in the states that is really quite interesting is that although the federal government is able to basically print money or monetize debt, the states can't and neither can local government. And that's really where the rubber meets the road. So if you look at what's happening to municipalities and follow Meredith Whitney's work, for instance, on on, uh, municipal debt, there is going to be an absolute rash of municipal bankruptcies in the United States. Several of them have happened already. What that amounts to is cities declaring bankruptcy, tearing up all their contracts, and like Detroit, which is in the forefront of this dynamic, um, probably 90% haircuts for the pensioners, 90% haircuts for the bondholders. Imagine the scenario that takes hold in the states when you're starting to see city after city go under, municipal employees losing their jobs, losing their salaries, losing their pensions, losing their health care. That's a lot of people. Pensions are already drastically underfunded and they're not those promises that those pensions represent are not going to be kept because it isn't going to be physically possible to keep them. The same kind of thing with with uh, municipal bonds. People thought, oh, this was safe as houses. This is a government guarantee, at least at some level of government. But those promises are only able to be kept, providing that the resources are there to do it. Municipal government can't print money. It's going to break its promises pretty much wholesale. So where Detroit leads, say Chicago, is likely to follow. These are big metropolitan areas. The impact of that happening will be huge. And it's not just municipalities. It's going to be states as well. If you look at the state of Illinois, for instance, that may be the test case for having to develop a a mechanism for state bankruptcy. California already issued Scrip in uh, in 2008. I'm interested in seeing how many states 
follow suit and do the same thing when we move back into financial crisis. So whatever the federal government is capable of doing, really the the issue is going to hit at lower levels of organization in the United States. And this is one of the dynamics of, of financial crisis, that scale really makes the difference. What you can do at one scale is not necessarily what you can do at another. And the, the effective organizational scale is going to change quite dramatically. And you know, with, with things like that, people always think, well, the federal government can print money, and the federal government can fix it, and the federal government can bail these things out, because they bailed out the banks, they bailed out companies. And let's be honest, if the federal government chose to, they could bail out Detroit. Maybe there's some political issues with doing it, but logistically, the federal government could bail out Detroit, but they can't bail out 100 or 200 or 300 municipalities, which is where we're headed. That's exactly the problem. And the same, the same argument holds for, for banks. You can bail out one bank. So, for instance, in the United Kingdom, they bailed out Northern Rock. But if you had the entire banking system in trouble at the same time, there would actually be very little you could do about it. Deposit insurance is therefore not worth the paper it's written on. Deposit insurance is, is a, a promise that cannot be kept. In other words, it's a bluff to try and maintain enough confidence that you don't have bank runs in the first place because it's lack of confidence that causes bank runs. If you can convince people to have confidence in the system, whether or not you'd be capable of keeping the promise you've just made, if you can restore confidence, that is enough in itself. But unfortunately, it doesn't work in times of economic depression. It works in times when you had a dead cat bounce like we have for the last few years, when you had a period of recovery, because a period of recovery involves a re regaining of confidence to some extent. But we're now approaching limits to that supposed recovery, and we're going to see that loss of confidence again. Loss of confidence is simply characteristic of periods of economic and financial contraction. So whatever you try to do to encourage confidence works when you're moving in an upward direction. All sorts of positive, optimistic things get traction then. But as soon as you're moving in a, a contractionary downward direction, nothing you do to bolster confidence is going to get any traction because fear will be in control. So you'll be fighting a headwind all the way down. And in fact, what central banks and things will be doing then is attempting to get ahead of the curve and not being able to do so because the contractionary dynamic unfolds more quickly than states and central banks are capable of responding to it. In other words, everything they do is too little too late. It fails, and in failing, it actually destroys what confidence remains in the ability of states and central banks to do anything about this kind of thing. So when you consistently fail and everything you do is too little too late, all of a sudden, instead of people saying the Fed is omnipotent, people will be saying the Fed is useless. So expect over the next few years, uh, Janet Yellen, for instance, to have a really, really hard time and quite possibly get drummed out of office in disgrace, along with whoever is elected the next president. Because when you preside over seriously hard times, your po political reputation is destroyed. You go down in flames. So this presidency, this upcoming presidency, is probably the biggest poison chalice in political history. So uh, no one no one with any brains. Do, do you think maybe that's why we have so many bad candidates for president right now? I mean, I've never been impressed ever with the 
lineup of candidates. But like this is like an election where you look at it and go, really? This is this is what we get? I mean, do you think maybe this is because anybody with half a brain right now that has political ambitions for the long term doesn't want anything to do with the next eight years as president? Absolutely. I mean, whoever <laughs> whoever's running for president now is is running to be the next Herbert Hoover. You don't want to be Herbert Hoover. Even although Herbert Hoover was probably one of the most qualified people ever elected president of the United States, if you're elected by landslide in 1928 and preside over the Depression, your reputation is in tatters for decades. Everyone remembers you as an abject failure. And the thing is, there's nothing anyone could have done. It wouldn't have mattered who was in office at that time. When you've had a credit bubble, it's going to burst. The consequences are going to follow from that as boom turns into bust. And whoever's in the hot seat is going to take all the blame. You know, similarly to the way if you're in the hot seat at the right time, you end up with a stellar political reputation, even if you're really not that much to write home about. So I'm no fan of Ronald Reagan, for instance, but I know an awful lot of Americans are, partly because he presided over a great bull market. When you do that, you get called the great communicator or the great whatever it might be. Preside over the wrong period of time and you are stuffed, basically. So if you want to be a political leader, don't preside over the contraction. Wait and lead the recovery. Then instead of Herbert Hoover, you're, you're FDR and you can institute something that actually will get some traction and make a difference. Then your political reputation is assured and you can actually act as a leader effectively. And if one has the ability and the inclination to be a leader, Wait for that bottom to come in and lead the recovery. So I know you and I have a lot of similar feelings about debt. Um, there's a lot of different types of debt, and some I consider to be absolutely catastrophic, and, and some I consider to have a val valid you know, means of leveraging. One of the big things right now that people are facing is, do I buy a house or not? And you know, should they take out a mortgage? Um, What do you think? Is that a good idea? How does that relate to people that are taking out a mortgage to start up something like a small farm? Uh, do you think that people can use these properties to pay the bills? Or do you think it's just a really bad idea to engage in any additional debt right now? Don't do it. Basically, there would be no mortgage market in the States if the taxpayer wasn't un underwriting all of it. That was the way that they, they put a floor under the housing market previously and it, after the, the crisis in 2008, 2009. But that can't continue forever. And essentially, although there's been the appearance of recovery, it's just reignited a, an echo of the housing bubble. And people are going to end up with the same problems again. They're going to end up in negative equity. The financial value of physical assets falls a long way when you move into financially contractionary times. So first, finance contracts and then aspects of the real economy contract. And that's very much going to include the housing market. So people are, have not really learned the lessons that it does not make sense to borrow huge amounts of money to buy overvalued property because you end up owing more than you own. Now, there are some places in the U.S. where mortgages are recourse loans, where you can have jingle mail if the if the um, you can send the keys back. And if if the thing sells in, in foreclosure for less than you owe, then it's the bank's problem, not yours. I would certainly expect those rules to change. 
So I don't think that people are going to be able to keep playing the games that they did last time. Last time, for instance, people were looking at their situation, saying we're in negative equity, but we know we can just mail back the keys. So while they still had decent credit, they would buy another house. Then they would mail back the keys on the first house, and they would just have uh, saved themselves $100,000, for instance, in, in mortgage over over the next uh, the life of of that mortgage games like that i don't think are going to be able to be played in the future i think the rules will change people are going to find that the consequences of indebtedness uh, increase when you move into seriously contractionary times and all the escape routes get closed so for instance right now although it's harder than it used to be you can still declare bankruptcy you can get a fresh start if you're in a state of unrepayable debt but when a trickle becomes a flood, I very much doubt that that avenue will still be available. And in fact, it's already not available for student debt, of which there's approximately a trillion dollars, a lot of which is just simply never going to be repaid. But the younger generation, especially the millennials that you were talking about, these people are going to be on the hook for tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars of student debt. They're going to be graduating into an unemployment market that looks like Greece, say 60% unemployment for youth in a few years' time. They will never pay back these loans. But just because you can't pay back a loan with money doesn't mean that a price cannot be taken from you. If you can't pay back in money, then you may lose your liberty when we move back into an era of debtors' prisons, indentured servitude, and being strong-armed into the military. So, for instance, young people are going to be told, well, shame about all that student debt. Look at the signing bonus we'll give you if you join the army. And already we're seeing the beginnings of debtors' prison. There are states in the U.S. where credit card companies can take you to court and you end up being declared in contempt of court over your debt. And then you get jailed for contempt of court, not necessarily for a long time yet, but enough to frighten you into attempting to pay off that which you owe. Credit card debt is unsecured debt. This should not be subject to debtor's prison. But there are, circum there are ways of circumventing what should be the rules in order to frighten people into paying back their debt. So I think anyone who is borrowing a lot of money right now is volunteering for debt servitude, essentially. And that is a very unfortunate position to be in. I would actually tell, especially young people, don't even think about buying a house and don't think about going to college unless you get a free ride. If you're prepared to work hard enough to get a scholarship that will take you through your education, by all means, go for it. But if you would have to borrow tens of thousands of dollars per semester, don't do it because you are never going to be able to pay that back. And odds are whatever you are studying will not be the kind of skill that the future requires anyway, so it won't allow you to put food on the table. If you want to put food on the table, think about an apprenticeship. Think about gaining real practical skills. What are you able to do that will allow you to provide essential goods or services to your neighbors in hard times? So it may be something you get paid for. It may be a barterable skill. But if you can get a skill like that or several of them, preferably under your belt, then the basics are taken care of because you can feed yourself. Then if you want to study something more esoteric or you know, fancy or if you want to do film studies or, or whatever it might be, do it in your own time. Do it by yourself. You do not need to sit in a classroom paying someone else a staggering amount of money in order to learn these other things. You know, if you've got enough intellectual curiosity, 
nothing stopping you from learning by yourself. If you don't have enough intellectual curiosity, then sitting in a classroom for four years is not going to help you anyway. So just don't get into trouble in the first place. Don't get behind the eight ball. Don't get into debt because the whole system at the moment is predatory. It's eating the younger generation alive. And this is a horrible thing to do. It's scraping the bottom of the barrel in terms of credit worthiness and then telling them they're on the hook forever. They don't even have the same, the same exit strategies that, that other people have. This, this is profoundly predatory. And I think it's going to fuel intergenerational conflict in really, really unfortunate ways. When it comes to the education system as a whole, I agree 100%. When it comes to going the debt to be part of that system, I agree 100%. When it comes to uh, the uh, the concept of consumer-level debt, credit cards and things like that, I agree. I don't completely agree, though, on mortgage issue. I think that if you buy a debt that you can service and you buy the right kind of property with a strategic understanding of what you're doing, that this indeed may be one of the, the, the last windows uh, available to get yourself into being a property owner and not being a permanent tenant for the rest of your life, though there are some strategic reasons to remain a renter or a leaser right now as well. So, I mean, don't you think there are instances right now where it makes sense to buy a, a piece of property and maybe even to leverage debt smartly to do so? I would say it, it's one of those things that there is a certain amount of variability. So it depends, A, what kind of property. You know, is it going to be fundamentally useful? If you're just buying a city condo, quite possibly not. If you're buying something where you can, where in buying it, you gain control over the essentials of your own existence, like food and water, and say maybe you have social capital in this area, maybe you have, uh, you know, lots of friends, lots of family, you can do it with little or no debt, then you may be able to buy property. But the point is not to be over leveraged in doing so. If you're young, you're almost certainly going to have to be over leveraged in order to do it. Then the, the risk is simply that you lose it to foreclosure anyway. And whatever you invested in that property is gone. Plus the debt will probably still exist. But if you can say pool wealth with other people so that you don't need a mortgage, collectively you may be able to buy a really useful property that will allow you to be self-sufficient as a group, even if you couldn't be self-sufficient by yourself or as just a nuclear family. So it, it really is going to depend on individual circumstances. Is is the property you would consider buying the right place to be stuck for the long term? Because when the property market goes illiquid, which it will for a period of time, you will be stuck there for a very long time. And in, a, in that way, you're making decisions in advance without necessarily having the full range of information. Sometimes you want to do that, but other times you don't. Now, if you already have enough information to assess that this is the, a great place to be stuck and you're not going to have to be too over leveraged to do it, then that may make sense. If it's not the right place to be stuck and you would be over leveraged, it's trapped. So be very, very careful about buying property. I don't think property prices have anywhere near bottomed because right now you can get mortgages. In a credit crunch future, nobody's going to be getting mortgages. If you look at what the interest rates were in, say, the mini credit crunch of, say, 1980-81, well, in Canada, where I was living at the time, interest rates hit 20%. That would push almost everyone over the edge. And nobody's going to be taking out mortgages at high rates of interest, even if they're offered, which they probably won't be. So then your pool of buyers is the handful of people who can afford 
to buy a property in cash and who choose to use scarce cash for that purpose at that time. That means your pool of buyers is tiny and there's no price support at anything remotely like current levels. So if you if you are buying now, you are likely to take a very large financial loss. Now, you only realize that loss if you sell. So if you're not forced to sell and you can hold that property for the long term, that may be fine. It's not that the property value will recover in financial terms, but there's more to life than finance. And if if in buying this property, you exchange a financial loss for control over food and water and, and other resources, that may be a perfectly good bet if you were in a position to take that financial loss in the first place. Not everybody is. If you have fewer resources, you have to make harder choices. So you may be able to uh, do some of the things that will be useful, but you won't be able to do all of them. And buying unleveraged property is probably beyond the reach of of an awful lot of people. If you look in the Depression, for instance, property prices fell a very long way. And there were properties in the in the U.S., farms, for instance, productive farms that went up at auction in foreclosure and got no bids. Now, that was partly because the neighbors were trying to prevent price discovery in order to protect their own property values. But also it was because cash was very scarce. And the people who might have considered buying these productive assets realized that at the time, nobody could afford to buy what these assets would produce. In other words, the value of even a productive asset can fall a very long way when there's very little money in the system. It doesn't mean that it will stay um, low. Over time, those productive assets will be productive again once you move into some form of recovery and people can afford the produce. But the question is, can you hold the asset for long enough for that to happen? So it comes down to profoundly individual circumstances as to what range of choices are open to you, how hard your choices are, what kind of time frame you're looking at. So for some people, owning property is going to help. For other people, it's a trap. For instance, you don't know where the upheaval will be. You don't know where the good things and bad things are going to happen beyond maybe a few generalities. There are going to be a lot of specifics that play out in local areas that are not predictable in advance. If you are renting, then you are mobile. You're free to go to wherever things are are good and to escape from wherever things are bad. If you own property, you've already made your choice. You've committed yourself to a local area. Now, for some people, being committed to a local area will make sense. For other people, especially young people, being mobile may make more sense. So you can go to wherever jobs might be. You can go to wherever there are opportunities. You can avoid places where there's upheaval going on. I also know from your writing you kind of expect that the uh, global population will go into decline. Can you talk about why you feel that's the case? We're very, very much over carrying capacity globally. Now, not equally so in all parts of the world. But if you look at what's happened to human population, it's experienced one of these hockey stick curves. And there's an incredibly tight correlation between human population and fossil fuel use. Now, we have reached peak oil. We are going to have less energy in the future. 40% of the nitrogen in the food supply, for instance, comes from the artificial fixation of nitrogen using primarily natural gas. When you start to have less in the way of fossil fuels, a whole range of ways that we have supported human population growth are no longer going to be there. If you look, for instance, at the way we produce food, we are 
essentially strip mining soil fertility extremely expensively in terms of money and energy. So what we do is we put in 10 units of energy, fossil fuel energy. We get out about one unit of food energy uh, for doing so. In other words, we have the least energy efficient food production system in the history of the world by a very, very wide margin. And in engaging in industrial agriculture in the way that we do, we are eliminating uh, ecosystems, replacing them with giant patches of monocrop, destroying the soil structure, destroying the soil fertility by constantly sucking out the micronutrients. We lace these crops with poisons in the form of, of pesticides and, and also glyphosate it, itself. Things like that are destroying the soil microflora that give you soil fertility. If you didn't have the ability to use fossil fuels to conduct industrial agriculture, then what we would find is that we have been farming subsoil, and the only reason we managed to grow anything at all is that we soaked everything with with fertilizers as, as if the soil was nothing but a dead sponge that you could spread chemicals all over and turn that into food. That only works if you have access to fossil fuels. When you have less access to fossil fuels and you can't do that anymore, your soil fertility becomes what it is without all the chemicals, which is going to be incredibly damaged. So we're not going to be able to produce the amount of food that we currently do. We're going to have to find radically different ways of producing food, but we won't be getting the yields that we're getting now. We need to move away from the whole industrial grain-based and then uh, CAFO meat production system because this is what's so incredibly environmentally damaging and also is uh, consuming the natural capital required to be able to farm in any way at all going forward. Now, when our food supply is reduced and we're also going to be facing issues with water, we're not going to be able to maintain the population we currently have. Carrying capacity is the idea that any given area can support a given population based on its resources. But when those resources have been depleted, the population that can be supported there will be smaller. And we have moved far enough in the way of resource depletion in our, our age of limits that supporting the existing population in a lot of places is going to be probably impossible. Now, some places are more overpopulated than others. The United States, for instance, has a lot more space. All of North America has a lot more space. And it is overpopulated, but not hideously so. Places like Southeast Asia, for instance, are hideously overpopulated. Parts of Europe as well, incredibly dense population in, say, the UK or the Netherlands. Uh, I remember reading a study that looked at the footprint of the Netherlands, saying that to feed the population in the Netherlands requires 17 times its own surface area. So you can maintain the population density somewhere like the Netherlands because you have the ability to suck in resources from the rest of the world. But when trade is failing and you can't produce as much in your own country as you used to because of all the issues with industrial agriculture, you can't maintain the population density they currently have. That's going to be a big problem for them. Even places like Australia. Australia is huge. It's as big as the continental United States, and it only has 22 million people. But there's a reason it only has 22 million people, in that it, a lot of it has almost no carrying capacity at all. It's terribly hot. It's desert. You can't grow anything. This is why the whole population lives around the edge. Other places, I live in New Zealand. New Zealand has four and a half million people and quite a lot of resources. So I think it's less likely to have a population issue than, than other parts of the world.
I'd say for the most part, I completely agree with everything you're saying there, but isn't there a, a shorter answer to that? And that is that the global population is already uh, in decline because our generation, Generation X, you know, we had less kids than the baby boomers did, no doubt. And the Y generation, the millennials, the Internet natives, all these younger people are consciously deciding to have less children. Many of them are, are, are remaining completely childless. And if it wasn't for immigration in the, in the developed nations of the world, they, they would be at a, a negative, not just a flat, but negative population already. So isn't it the case that even if everything turns out super-duper, we're still going to have a decline in population? That's absolutely true. That's one of the conundrums with population is that if you look at a situation of overpopulation and say, oh, well, yes, we'll, we'll just have very few children, what you end up with is a whole cohort of elderly people starving to death because there's nobody to support them. And that can happen relatively quickly. You know, you're quite right. You're exactly. And the place that's most in the firing line for this dynamic is China because of the one-child policy. A one-child policy is a four-grandparents policy. That means every child will have four grandparents to support. And this will be at a time when China's already moving into financial crisis itself. A whole lot of its export economy is going to collapse. People are going to try and go back to their villages, but there's nothing there for them either. And how is this one person going to support four people when they can't even support themselves? So China has a high population. I think the Chinese population could fall very quickly, especially because they've comprehensively destroyed their environment in their, their dash for modernity as well. But it's not just China. Japan is aging very quickly. There's no space in Japan. You live in a tiny apartment. You can't afford to have more than one or two children. You just don't have anywhere to put them. Parts of Europe are aging as well. Population growth is slowing down, even in the, de the developing countries that have been stuck in the demographic transition for a long time, where uh, death rates had fallen, but birth rates were still increasing. The population uh, exploded in some of these places, but their consumption tends to be very low. If you look overall at global population, it's population times consumption that, that gives you the, the uh, pressure on resources, of course. But really, overconsumption in the developed world is more a cause of the problem than overpopulation in, in the developing world, because these people use next to nothing uh, on, on average in comparison to, to what we would use. But we are going to have population problems as we move into contraction, because you know, I'm a Gen X as well. We, we had fewer children. The, the younger people are having even fewer children. And there are going to be even fewer jobs than the fewer children that we're having are, are going to need. So that's going to put a lot of pressure. And this is another going to be another part of intergenerational conflict that the baby boomers in particular, and to some extent Gen Xers, are expecting their children to pay their pensions, to be working and to paying into the system that keeps them in the, the state that to which they've become accustomed. They're going to find that that isn't going to happen that pensions are going to be promises that get defaulted upon and that there are going to be a whole lot of elderly people who are going to be not just poor but probably destitute moving forward and that the lifespan will be limited for that older cohort really quite dramatically. Um, I'm going to uh, ask a question because it's in your notes of things you wanted to talk about today that I think could be a powder keg. Maybe I'll be wrong. I'm not sure. Uh, but why do you not focus on climate change as a problem? I don't either. I have a feeling we might have very different reasons for that, or who knows, we might have really very similar reasons. So where are you at on that? 
Well, partly for exactly the reason that you alluded to, that it's it's such it's become a religious debate. No matter what you say, unless you take fully one side or the other, everyone will hate you. And so and and then, of course, that affects your credibility on every other issue that you discuss. There, there are a few issues like that where it's very, very difficult to have any kind of real debate anymore because everything is so fundamentally polarized and everyone on both sides of the debate has already decided not only what, what the truth with a capital T is, but also that anyone who doesn't agree with truth with a capital T is a heretic and therefore to be ignored on every other issue. Yes, it, it, I, I have real trouble with this. So I just find there's very little to be gained from discussing climate change. I, I have a far more nuanced position because the world is a complex place. I don't believe in simple one dimensional explanations for pretty much anything. And so I, I have a much more complex nuanced position than either extreme, which means that if I attempt to articulate this position, it gets me into trouble with absolutely everybody at once and for basically no gain. I mean, what is to be achieved by me trying to lay out this this position of, of complexity when nobody is going to listen anyway? And quite frankly, it doesn't even matter whether they do or not, because climate climate is a large is a global issue. Whatever is going on at a global level, we're not going to be able to do anything about not voluntarily. So top down mechanisms are going to fail. This is, is one of the aspects of, of my thesis is that when you move into economic and financial contraction, then effective organizational scale gets dramatically smaller. So do not look for solutions to anything from the top down. And that will very much include tackling global issues at a global level. It's not going to happen you know, if, if we agreed limits on CO2 production then everyone would immediately cheat the system and think, well, we'll let everyone else take the economic contraction and we won't do it. And then we'll be free riders on the system, but everyone will be doing that. So nothing will work in terms of these large scale um, international agreements to limit carbon production. And quite frankly, they're laughable. They are utterly unworkable. It, it's not that we will not produce less CO2 in the future. We will because we will have no choice. So in a period of economic contraction where there's a lot less economic activity and a lot less employment, people are not going to be driving to jobs they no longer have. We are going to produce less CO2. If you, you look at what happened in the Soviet Union, its emissions fell a very long way in a very short period of time, not voluntarily, but because of drastic economic contraction. Now, I actually think the situation is vastly more complicated than CO2. Uh, one of the things that I find particularly annoying is when people suggest that there is a straight linear relationship between CO2 and, and temperature, because if there's one thing we know about climate, it's that it is not linear. So you can't make a linear extrapolation. There are all kinds of complex factors that play into it. There are other greenhouse gases. There's global dimming on the other side. There are feedback loops in both directions. They interact with each other. It's too complex for us to entirely understand how that works. There are cycles of natural forcings that we don't understand. And, and I, I tend to think that there's, there's far more in the way of unknowns than knowns in this field. But expressing that gets me into trouble. Yeah, it's pretty much an issue where you're either considered like this evil uh, person that wants to destroy the earth, you're an evil Republican that wants to destroy the earth, 
uh, or your economy that wants a global tax that you and whenever you take the middle position is you're saying like we're doing bad things to the planet but this maybe isn't the biggest issue we need to be working on then like both sides hate you you can't please either side and nothing you say matters to anybody and that's because you're bringing a logical point to an illogical argument in my opinion the the other the other issue that is in the same camp is 911 and we every time people try and discuss 911 on the automatic earth we say please don't because no one is going to convince anyone else you are on one side or the other we express no opinion on this whatsoever because it gains us nothing in doing so it just ignites a flame war for no purpose whatsoever yeah, that's another one that really takes what I consider a religious uh, affiliation. Like it, People don't have a, a well-reasoned argument and say, I'm bringing this with logic. They either knee-jerk to one side or the other. And when you sit in the middle of that and say, hey, look, I believe that maybe the government didn't tell us all the truth, one camp goes, conspiracy theorists, 9-11, truth or nut job. And, and then the other side's like, hey, keep talking. And then you're like, well, I also don't think maybe that every single thing that's in Every single conspiracy theory happened, and I don't think maybe some guy that owned a building gave the order to control demolition. It maybe there's some middle ground here where there was some uh, things that the government didn't tell us that they should have, and then maybe there's some things that just you know we all saw planes crash at the building. They weren't space orbs or whatever. And both sides will absolutely slaughter you when you take that again logical approach into an illogical argument space. I mean, coming back to the climate change thing at the end, I mean, don't you think there's a lot of things we could be doing, especially at the regional level, at the local level, that actually do address severe environmental crises, things like reforesting land, stopping desertification, uh, whatever we can do to actually make a real measurable difference, because it seems to me we're not going to change the global climate. It's not going to happen, but we can change local and regional climate, and it has been done, and it has been proven to work. Yes, anything that's become a religious debate is to be avoided. And you're, you're quite right about addressing other forms of environmental damage because there, there are so many things we can do that we can do locally that where we can work within effective organizational scale in a contractionary environment, we can do an enormous amount to change our form of food production, to regenerate soil fertility, to reduce all kinds of harmful emissions and, and Personally, I'd be far more concerned about, say, toxic waste streams into rivers than, than I am about, about CO2. So I think that there's a great deal that can be done that should be focused on. And a lot of this will be profoundly local. So people are going to have to do to organize to deal with these things in their local area. It's not that we're going to see global top down mechanisms for controlling anything. The last time we managed to introduce one of those, it was over um, chlorofluorocarbons um, destroying ozone. But that was only because it was extremely clear what the threat was. And it was actually extremely easy to do something about it. I mean, you're right. In that instance, there was a viable alternative. It was relatively easy to transition to, and we were in good place to make that transition. And 
we were in expansionary times when effective organizational scale was increasing, so it was becoming easier and easier to do things at large scale from the top down, because this was the 80s. We're not in that situation anymore. So especially for things that are incredibly complex and top down, forget it. We are not going to be instituting mechanisms to control that sort of thing. And one of the things that that I find also very interesting about um, the whole climate change debate is people say, well, we must get people very frightened about climate change so that they will focus exclusively on that and, and do something about it. And I think, okay, well, if you got people collectively terribly frightened about climate change, well, for one thing, fear isn't going to need any help. It'll get plenty of traction anyway. And when fear is in control, horrible things happen. So don't encourage fear because you only make everything worse. But also, if you inspire, say, um, corporate entities or governments to do something about climate change, in, in quotes, what would they actually do? Well, um, carbon trading Ponzi schemes, um, massive geoengineering. Oh, now, come on. You're not saying that maybe, just maybe, the people behind this big, giant climate change movement might not take something like carbon credits, turn it into a a brand new economic indicator and a brand new form of currency and inflate a whole brand new bubble up around the the concept of actually making not acting worth something to basically say in a non-action now generates a value and then take that fake money and start a new game of Monopoly and restart the casino? That can't be what you're saying, is it? That's what we do. We financialize things, and then we introduce boom and bust. We create virtual value all over the place. Carbon trading Ponzi schemes are dire, and they would do nothing to reduce emissions. They would do a great deal to increase them, plus they would remove any incentives to actually do things that really mattered. So that would be a pure negative. Geoengineering involves messing with complex systems that we do not understand in ways that could have horrendous impacts and, and both amounts of money in the hands of the elite and make an environmental situation worse and disadvantage even further ordinary people. The other thing is, say, we might build a $6 billion barrage, tidal barrage around New York City, for instance. And well, any idea how many emissions come off that much concrete? You know, and, and again, you're just putting huge amounts of money in the hands of the few that the many will have to pay for that are actually in no sense a solution to the problem, no matter how you understand the problem. So I, I look at these these things. Or, or there's ecofascism, that's that's another one. Or um you know, just we must tear down industrial civilization. I've heard that from, from a number of people. These are things that all of these things are going to make life significantly worse in the short term while doing nothing to solve our long-term problems. So all of them are bad, and this is exactly the kind of things that, that getting everybody frightened would be most likely to encourage. So the kind of things that one would want to do, would want to see people do, are things like voluntary simplicity, being more self-sufficient, not having the same reliance on energy and money as you currently have, because those things are not going to be available, well, guess what? If you move in the direction of greater self-sufficiency in terms of, of money and energy, you will also reduce emissions of all sorts of things, CO2, poisonous chemicals, whatever it might be, methane. There's so many ways in which you would actually benefit the environment on a teeny tiny scale because you're only one person. But when everything is forced into contraction, then you will see involuntary reductions in all kinds of environmental externalities. And 
you don't have to suggest to people that they should act on the basis of climate change in order to do this. In fact, if you frame your argument in terms of climate change, people will do exactly nothing because it's long term and it's not a personal immediate threat. So that's incredibly unmotivating. Tell people to do the exact same things on the grounds of finance and peak oil because both of those are personal and they are relatively immediate, especially finance. People will actually do it. So you get the impact that you want in term in environmental terms by not framing the argument in environmental terms. Yeah, I mean, it, it, right here in, in the north-central Texas edge desert, what we're doing is re, we're reforesting our three-acre pieces of land. And we're developing systems that raise livestock and produce an output for us, that give us income in the form of a business, that give us food in the form of meat and eggs and uh, plant material, and give us resources to do things like generate energy, heat, charcoal. We're being able to do all of that. And it kind of amazes me how much we think the same given you know your educational pedigree and me coming at this as basically a redneck duck farmer we're both systems thinkers that's why <laughs> well it definitely is systems thinking that's something that we talk about all the time here at the survival podcast it's very much in line with permaculture principles and it is uh, to me the only way that you can actually solve problems i come at this as a former military mechanic that learned troubleshooting in a procedural system style and that's where that comes from in me And systems thinkers come from a whole range of backgrounds. They are not necessarily academics. They're often people who have a whole range of different, very practical aspects of life experience. And it's fascinating to look at, at people from so many different walks of life come to the same basic conclusions and the same basic view of the world. This is not something you have to have multiple degrees in order to figure out. So what do you tell the average nine-to-fiver in, in all of this catastrophic talk that they should be doing? I mean, we talk about, you know, I, I think the best scenario that we have going forward is a very painful, traumatic shift. And that's that's the more the higher probability I see. Not not the end of the world as we know it and zombies marching and everything, but just this really painful shift, something that's different than anything we have to look at in in, in living historical context. And I'd I'd say even more severe than things like the Great Depression and things like that. Uh, but it also could be far more catastrophic than I think. So what does the average person need to do to be able to deal with what's coming? Because it's either going to be bad or really bad. I think one of the, the most important things they can do is to really get to know their neighbors, assuming that is that they want to stay in the environment that they live in. If you want to stay where you currently live, you need social capital above all else. You have to have people you trust that you can work with. Relationships of trust are the foundation of society at all times. So focusing on that will make everything easier because then you're working with people. When you trust people, you can pool resources with them. And for instance, you don't, it's not the case that everyone needs to have one of everything. You know, if, if you're in an environment where things start to break down because we have planned obsolescence and we can't afford to keep all of them going, well, maybe one per street of, say, washing machines might be enough or cars. There's so many things that you can you can do by pooling resources that allow scarce resources to go further. I would also say to people, you need to be out of debt if you possibly can. For a lot of people, that means selling a home and, and renting. 
which is a very tough decision to make. But nevertheless, if you if you sell a property and cash out whatever equity you have, you typically would be able to get into a position of no debt and a certain amount of cash on hand. Both of those things are important. Those are number are that are very high on the list. Community building, no debt, cash on hand because cash under your own control, that means you have to be in the position to manage the risks upon it. Cash on hand is, is another very important aspect in a liquidity crunch. You need access to liquidity. This is your handful of choices that you have a right to make later at a time when there are more opportunities and more more information as to what are the appropriate choices to make. So you want to have a certain amount of cash on hand. If by owning a property you have tons of debt and no money, then you really haven't made a choice that's going to be sustainable in the longer term. If, on the other hand, you're renting, you have no debt, and you have cash on hand, you're in a vastly better position. Also, things like having as much control as you can over the essentials of your own existence. Where do your food and water and energy come from? The more local they are, the more control you have over these things, the better. So when it comes to liquidity, how what risks are you facing? How are you managing those risks? If your liquidity is tied up in the system, the risk you're facing is the, the insolvency of middlemen. You can't do anything about that whatsoever, and it's a huge risk. Don't take risks that you can't manage. If you're looking after your own form of liquidity, well, the risks are obvious. There's fire and flood and theft. It's not. I'm not belittling these risks, but they are risks you're in a position to manage if you engage brain creatively, and there are many, many ways to do that. So this is the way you preserve your capital's liquidity, and then you have your freedom of action, your choices to make later, and that's something you're going to need. If you look at Cyprus, for instance, the banks closed. That was it, liquidity crunch, cash-only economy from one week to the next. That's the kind of scenario we could easily be facing if you don't have cash on hand and the ATMs aren't working, the banks aren't open, you can't use your credit card, you're going to be in trouble pretty quickly. And Americans don't tend to have savings. They tend to have credit card balance that they use for a rainy day. Well, if your credit card balance isn't there, like in 2008, they unilaterally cut people's uh, uh, available credit, they raised interest rates, all of that will happen again, only much more so. If you don't have cash on hand, you could be in trouble. You may not be able to have much cash on hand as an individual, but if you can pool resources with other people you trust collectively, you may have enough cash on hand to do the things that you collectively need to do. But it's a shift of mindset. The U.S. is a profoundly individual place, and that's going to be a big big barrier um, psychologically for an awful lot of people. But if they can cross that barrier, then Good things can generally come from that. And that keeps people in a constructive headspace as well. Because if they've thought in advance about what it is they're going to need to do, and they know what they're doing, they know why they're doing it, they know who they're doing it with, and they trust those people, they don't get sucked up into movements of anger and fear that do nothing but give political mandates to complete freaks. And I can think of quite a few of those on the American political spectrum right now. We don't want these kind of people in a position with their fingers on dangerous buttons. So undermine their their political support by keeping people focused on that which they can do locally that's actually constructive and just keep them getting on with it. I would say ignore the political process because nothing good is going to come from the top down no matter who's in the hot seat. So just concentrate on the constructive things we can we can do locally. Another thing people can do is to start businesses locally. If they have enough resources that they've already, say, um, got control of the essentials, they've got no debt, they've got cash on hand, maybe they can start a business with local 
supply chains and local distribution networks in order to strengthen the local fabric of society. So if you run a business like this to provide essential goods and services locally and you've managed to reduce or eliminate dependencies on trade, on credit and various other things, your business can be part of the fabric of society that will be maintained. Now, people tend not to invest in the real economy because the returns are so much lower than they are in the speculative global capitalist casino. But just because the returns are lower doesn't mean that that it's not a, a, an appropriate choice. When people are investing in the capitalist casino, they're risking the income and the capital because the yield that they're getting when they're chasing yield is not compensating them for the risk that they're taking. The losses could be catastrophic. Invest in the real economy, and yes, the returns will be lower, but if you're investing in something that's actually real – that you understand where you've developed a business model that's addressing the, the future following a substantial trend change, there's no reason that that should disappear. You can, you can deploy your capital, you're earning an income. Both of those things are likely to be far less risky than anything involved in financial speculation would be at the moment. So there's a whole range of things that people can do. I would say we need to focus on solution space because anything we do that's outside of solution space is a total waste of time and resources. What lies within solution space that is at least theoretically workable is where we should focus those scarce resources. So because of financial crisis, your solution can't be expensive. Because we're, we're going to see contraction, the trust horizon will contract. Your solution cannot be large scale and top down. Because we're looking at much less energy than we currently have, your solution cannot be energy intensive. Because the energy supply, particularly the high energy profit ratio energy supply, determines the level of socioeconomic complexity you can maintain, we're going to be living in a simpler society when we have less energy and we're living on lower energy profit ratio energy sources. In other words, if your solution depends on the current level of socioeconomic complexity, that lies outside of solution space as well. If your solution depends on current levels of cooperative behavior and the psychology of expansion, which is optimistic and peaceful, that isn't going to work when we move into the psychology of contraction, which is much more driven by fear and anger and suspicion. So if we eliminate that which we can identify up front is going to be fundamentally unworkable and focus on the small scale, local, constructive, uh, relatively inexpensive, relatively non-energy intensive kinds of solutions, that solution space is actually far more populated than people think. But we have to think differently. We have to think outside the box and think about how life could look completely different, yet still deliver the essentials of our own existence. It is possible. It's just that getting from where we are now to where we need to be is going to be a bit of a rocky road. You know, I guess my big question for anybody that thinks this way is always, how far do you think they can kick the can and for how much longer and how effectively? Uh, I've actually been kind of blown away with how... How effective their can kicking has been up to this point. I, I don't necessarily think that I, I'm surprised that we're still going, so to speak, but I, I've seen them do things that I think will have us going longer than I would have thought was possible eight years ago. Um, do you think they could kick the can another 10 years, 15, 20 years? Do you think we're looking at months, or do you think it's already in motion and nobody sees it? That's kind of what I think, like this slow motion behind the scenes slide uh, that's going down. Or am I wrong? Can they kick this thing 20 years out? Which one, you know, where do, where do you fall on that? No. 
essentially, there's already a lot going on behind the scenes. We're already moving into global liquidity crunch, not just in the places like Greece where it's obvious, but looking at what's happening in China, for instance, and how China is basically exporting deflation at the moment. There's a lot going on behind the scenes in the derivatives market. We're seeing interventions that ordinary people wouldn't notice, but are nevertheless there and are very significant. So the liquidity crunch is developing behind the scenes. By the time ordinary people notice it, it will basically be too late. It will already have happened. So the insiders are already playing games behind the scenes. The whole period of kicking the can down the road has been allowing the insiders time to cash out. It's not trying to save the system from the benefit of ordinary people. It's simply trying to bail out the insiders so that they've been able to consolidate their position over the last few years. And now the concentration of wealth as we move into contraction will be even greater than it would otherwise have been. Eventually, you get to the point where all the income streams of the productive economy can't service the debt that's been created. And you start to get these cascading waves of debt default. Now, if you look at the derivatives market, which is, say, for the sake of argument, no one really knows the number, but a notional value of, say, a quadrillion dollars. All of that is excess claims to underlying real wealth because all of it is simply bets on the price movements of underlying assets. It doesn't really have any connection, any real connection with anything physical and tangible, any kind of real value. So that's a huge excess claims to underlying real wealth mountain. It has a built-in meltdown mechanism because the counterparty risk is massive. There's no capital adequacy regulation. And when we start to see derivatives blow up, because these are such highly leveraged bets, they have the ability to cascade and blow up one thing after another. And this is very likely to happen. In fact, I think it's already begun. And once it gets going and it picks up momentum, as all swings of positive feedback do, they become self-reinforcing, we get that slide back into financial crisis. It's the same thing that happened when Lehman Brothers failed, for instance. You could see that coming because you could look at the credit default swaps on Lehman Brothers and see that the market was saying, well, the price of insurance is going exponential against a default on Lehman Brothers. The market is saying Lehman Brothers is going to fail. So if you know what to look for, you can see these things coming in advance. But by the time most people see the impact, the deal is done and dusted, and it's far too late for them to do anything about it. We, are, we do not have decades. I don't think we even have years. It's hard to say exactly when it will happen. And as we discussed earlier, it will happen at different times in different places. So the, the system, the predatory system, tends to pick off the little sick ones first. But we've already seen a lot of that happening. Emerging markets have got hammered. The whole dynamic is going to be moving into the center. So we're going to get the shock doctrine, for instance, in Naomi Klein's terms, moving into the economies of the center, which are totally unprepared to deal with it. And it's going to generate absolutely enormous amounts of social unrest because people are so overstretched. They have so many bets placed and effectively on a certain kind of future. The rug is about to be pulled out from under their feet and all the assumptions they've built their lives on will be invalidated. So they really they have to do something about this right now. And yesterday would have been better. I've been warning about this. I've been traveling around the world warning about this for five years. People who started to make changes five years ago 
could be ideally positioned now, people who start today are going to have a harder time. They're not going to have as long to to extract themselves from from a dangerous position. It's still worth starting. You may not get all the way there. But the more we can do, the more we can extract ourselves from the system and sit on the sidelines in, in cash and essential goods, the, the better we are able to face the future. So how sure of yourself are you with your predictions? I mean, would you put a percentage on it? You think you're 100% can't be wrong, guaranteed right? You think you're 50-50? You think you're 70-30? Or, I mean, how confident are you that the things you're predicting will happen and will happen in kind of the time frame you're laying out? I'm really quite confident because if you look at what happens every time there's a credit bubble, their boom turns to bust. The virtuous circle becomes a vicious circle, and there's a very large-scale comeuppance. And the scale of the hangover is proportionate to the scale of the party that preceded it. We've just had the biggest party, so to speak, in the history of the world. So this is the largest financial bubble there's ever been. But look at what happened historically. Look at the historical record. So the enormous bubble of the, the 11 and 1200s, for instance, that led into the disastrous 14th century. There, or, or on a smaller scale, the Roaring Twenties that led into the Depression of the 1930s. There are so many instances when this has happened. It's just that human beings are not very good at learning the lessons of history. They very rarely see their own situation reflected in in the past. They say, well, the past is fundamentally different. We have nothing to learn from the past. Well, we absolutely do. And if we internalize those lessons, we can see what's coming. It doesn't give us an absolute roadmap, but it gives us a compass. It gives us a, a basic understanding of, of the trend change that's coming and the implications that will flow from that. But nevertheless, there will still be a lot of unknowns. This history doesn't, doesn't uh, repeat itself, but it rhymes, as they say. So we're going to have a lot of unknowns. We're going to have to deal with a lot more risk and uncertainty than we're used to. But there are certain things that are knowable, including the basics of this this large scale scenario that that I've painted. So I have a, I have a high level of confidence in the scenario itself, but I try not to predict specific time frames because there are too many unknowns in the system. But my personal opinion is that we're already seeing these cascading dynamics starting again. That. What's happening in China, what's happening behind the scenes um, in, in the world of finance, this is already happening. What's happening all over the European periphery, this is not theoretical. It's already underway, and I think it is going to, as all swings of positive feedback, pick up momentum over time. So you tend to start slow and pick up more and more momentum when you move in this fundamentally different direction. And I think the trend change has already happened. We're just waiting to see the consequences flow from that. What do you think about the potential for massive movement, massive migration of people within America across the world as a whole? I mean, we've seen it with economic crises in the past. There were, you know, Hoover towns uh, during uh, the Great Depression, uh, as they were called. And you're right, Hoover got beat up for something he really didn't do. I mean, I think the only positive mention of Herbert Hoover ever was in the Archie Bunker song. Uh, but, uh, you know, when I look at it today, I already see this happening. Right now, if you want to rent a U-Haul and you want to take it from Los Angeles to Dallas, it's a lot cheaper than if you want to take it from Dallas to L.A. Uh, because they know if it, or I'm sorry, if it, the other way around, because they know if it goes, if it comes from, from Los Angeles to Dallas, it's probably never going back. 
But if it goes from Dallas to L.A., it'll be coming back because people are moving. I started a whole movement called Walking to Freedom. We have a, a forum for people to find new homes given the current state of liberty and economics in this country. So, you know, do you think we'll see more and more of that? Because history would tell us that it always does happen. And then sometimes there's some real conflicts over it. You know, when the Hoover Town showed up in certain places, people didn't want them there. They didn't want them competing for what resources and jobs were available. So how do you see that? Well, I, I completely agree with you that migration is going to pick up momentum enormously. You only have to look at what's happening in Europe right now. That's much more the focus at the moment is that you can walk to Europe from North Africa or walk and take little dodgy boats anyway. You know, and and that's that's before you start seeing outward migration from China and India, both of which are going to have huge problems. Europe, I think, is going to be swamped. It, it's already on the way to that. I think Germany is expecting between one and a half million and two million people this year. That's huge compared to the size of the existing population. And trying to integrate that scale of migration, especially very culturally different people, is going to put a lot of strain on the social fabric. And I think that's going to feed into some very unfortunate situations. And within the U.S., the migration, I think, is mostly going to be within the country. So it's not going to have quite the same kind of cultural discontinuity that, um, that it was likely to have in, in Europe. Personally, the kind of places I think people will be leaving – uh, the Southwest that's in, in this, this historic drought, I think, is going to see a lot of depopulation, especially places like, say, Las Vegas, you know, big cities in the desert that critically depend on, on water to be delivered from somewhere else. And the water delivery depends on energy supply, for instance. Those are places that I think are going to be very much underpopulated, where, where there's going to be a, a big exodus. I think people will be going to places like the Pacific Northwest and the Great Lakes Basin. Now, places like Detroit might actually not be such a bad bet. How much further could it fall? You can buy a house for less than $500. There's land, there's water. You know, yes, there's a huge amount of risk, but college students are already buying up houses in, in Detroit and setting up farmer's markets and gardens and things like that. Yeah, I mean, what they're doing, they're buying four houses for a couple thousand dollars, tearing three of them down, using the, the salvage uh, components of the three they tear down, to rebuild the one into something really nice, taking the fences down between them and having one sizable lot they're turning into urban farms. It's really kind of cool. That's that's very, very adaptive because you can do that with almost no money. You just put the effort in, and yes, you're facing a, a lot of physical risk in an area like that, but if enough people do that, you can stage a complete renewal in places like that, and it will be far more able and possible to adapt if you're living in somewhere like Detroit than it will be if you've just bought an overpriced house in Silicon Valley, for instance, where you're going to be holding something where you get in, in total negative equity, you get screwed. All of California is in, in a drought. I, I think that the Southwest is going to be particularly problematic. The Pacific Northwest will end up overpopulated. It already is. But a lot of people will migrate there because it looks really perfect. Anything that looks really very good is almost certainly overpopulated and overpriced even right now. Places to go to are the sort of diamonds in the rough, if you like. Places where people don't see it as an obvious choice so that you can get something for very little in the way of resources. Places like the old Rust Belt towns where it's not a bad kind of area to be in. It get, Even the fact that it gets cold, well, that means you don't end up with certain diseases that you end up with when things never get cold enough. 
seasonality is not necessarily a problem. You just have to adapt to it. So I think places like that will, will be fundamentally quite, quite useful. I think that the southeast, well, it will depend. The, right now, it, people want to live there because you can air condition somebody's entire life. But when you can't do that anymore, then an awful lot of people aren't going to want to live in the southeast either. But the people who, who can tolerate those conditions will probably find they can make a decent go of it uh, down there. But I think there's going to be a general movement northward when you when you can't air condition things anymore and and the effects of drought really really kick in uh, to that much greater extent also the central area a lot of that's underlain by the Ogallala aquifer this is fossil water it's being depleted far far more quickly than it's being replenished so essentially it's a non-renewable resource and that underlies the fertility of the great plains I think in the not too distant future, although not instantly, we're not talking about a financial system. It's a, a, a longer term impact. But the impact of losing the Ogallala aquifer on the breadbasket of North America is going to be really, really huge as well. So I think people will be looking to be more more coastal and um, further north on the whole. So I think that that's the kind of migration pattern uh, we could see. But it is going to be challenging because there aren't any areas that are not already populated. So when people start to move around a lot, this is going to cause uh, social social problems. And there's a really interesting book I would strongly recommend, written in the 1980s, but even more true now than it was then, called The Nine Nations of North America, which is looking at the cultural divides within North America that don't necessarily correspond at all to the political lines on, on a map. So looking at where those cultural divides are, plus looking at the physical carrying capacity and the environmental patterns, the existing population patterns and food production patterns, that I think would give you a sense of what's likely to unfold in North America. I don't think it will be on the same scale as what's happening in Europe, but nevertheless, it is going to be significant. And we probably will see people come from overseas to North America. It's just that because you can't really walk there, it ends up being on a smaller scale than what's happening in Europe. Well, I've really enjoyed our conversation, eh? I know we're at a point where you have to get on with uh, taking care of the kids and get them to school and what have you. So we'll, we'll kind of start wrapping up now. But uh, I just want to say it's been a great interview. Um, there's people out there that are probably thinking that might be Jack's long-lost sister. And who knows? Maybe you are. I mean, uh, I can't say I agree 100%, but like 99 is a very high, high percent for me to agree with somebody on things with. And, and that's where I am with, with you on most of this stuff. So I think it's... Uh, it's really it's been a great interview, and uh, I appreciate being with us today. Oh, thank you very much. It's been fascinating. I love talking to people who get it. It's wonderful. Well, I certainly enjoyed it, and uh, I'd love to have you back sometime. But for right now, can you tell people a little bit more about your website? I know you have a really cool series of articles there that a lot of this is based on that we're talking about today. I'll make sure you have links to those. But just about the, the website as a whole and what resources people might find there that they could use. Wonderful. It's called The Automatic Earth, and it's the URL is theautomaticearth.com. Now, a lot of the background work that I've done is in the primer section. So you look at the uh, the bar at the top and just click on primers, and that's where most of the background essays are. I need to update the page so that it's got some of the more recent ones because there are quite a few that aren't on it yet, but they will be hopefully fairly soon. And what you normally find if you look at the automatic earth on a daily basis is the work done by, by my writing partner who does the vast majority of day-to-day -day analysis. Uh, every day he puts up a debt rattle which is basically a compilation of all the important news in the world of finance and various other things as well, uh, links to 
all the things that people really need to to read to be aware of what's going on. And he points out why these things are important. He also writes regular articles interpreting the news of the day. These things are are extremely worth looking at. But if you have for people who haven't got a background in this sort of thing, start with the primers because that's where you really get to see the world view. Then the interpretation of the day to day things make a great deal more sense. Well, again, Nicole, thanks for being with us. And all of the resources mentioned will be in the links in the show notes today. I encourage readers to take a closer look at your website. And uh, I've been closing the show lately with all kinds of different music. And I'm going to close it today with a song that Nicole mentioned, The Boy in the Bubble Ball by Paul Simon. And the audience and I will be listening to this song the first time ever together. Because I like Paul Simon. He's one of my uh, really, really uh, favorite songwriters and musicians of all time. But I've not heard this song. So I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing it. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico today along with Nicole Foss helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
Don't cry, don't cry, don't cry. Don't. 